the genius of what economists call the Nordic model is that it keeps looking out for the well-being of the whole at the same time as it supports creativity and innovation. This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do, get commercial-free versions of every episode and occasional members-only bonus content, visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The Majority Report, Economic Update with Professor Richard Wolff, The David Pakman Show, and The Zero Hour. Fox News is not overly concerned with defense spending, the trillions of dollars we wasted in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, but they found out uh, one part of our budget that is unacceptable. We're giving too much money to the poor. But wait a minute, how about the trillions in tax cuts to the rich and corporations, and especially the ones that Trump and the Republicans are promising now, to the tune of possibly $10 trillion over the next decade? Yeah, no, we're giving the poor too much money. All right, let's let Fox News explain. Well, food stamp fraud is at an all-time high, and it is estimated $70 million of taxpayer money was wasted on food stamp fraud. So is it time to end the program altogether? Oh, my God, $70 million. That sounds like a lot of money. I'm going to give you context on that in a second, and you're going to see what a little money is and a lot of money is when it comes to the federal government. But you notice what she just said? Is it time to end the program altogether? Well, there's a little bit of waste in a program. Then we kill it. Can we apply that same standard to the Pentagon? Mm, probably not. Again, let me get to those numbers in a second, but I want to give you one more clip here. This program, the SNAP program, the, the reincarnation of the food stamp program, has been ripe with problems since almost its inception. Bob Dole said in 1977 that we have finally eliminated the need, eliminated the greed, and, and fed the need. And unfortunately, 40 years later, we still see the same problems with fraud, with abuse, and really just overspending on this particular program. Fraud and abuse. I mean, we found it. The one thing helping poor people in, in, in this government, we got to get rid of it, right? Now, let's give you the facts. First of all, they said record amount of fraud in 2016 this year. We don't even have the numbers for this year. So let me give you the reality. Their on screen graphic cited 2016 USDA as the source of this information. However, according to the Department of Agriculture website, the most recent data available is from 2015. So this, look. You could say, hey, that's a small mistake, 2015, 2016. That's the latest numbers they have, right? First of all, that's Fox News claiming those numbers. But, uh, but it's not a small mistake. Think about why they're doing it. They have created a false urgency. Now, oh, breaking news. Oh, my God, the latest numbers from this year is all of this abuse. We've got to end this food stamp thing as soon as Trump gets into office. See, that's the fake urgency. It's actually last year's numbers. Okay, but we're not anywhere near done. Let's keep going. Okay, now let's give you context for this food stamp program. They made it sound like it's a giant program. Oh my God, it's bleeding the budget dry. We gotta end it. We gotta end it. Uh, quote, SNAP overall compromises about 0.1% of the federal budget. Not 1%, 0.1% of the federal budget. So other stuff is 99.9% .9 of the budget. Okay, now the question is, is there fraud and abuse? which, by the way, there's fraud in almost every department of the government to some degree, as you're about to see, and in private corporations, and the list goes on. So if you want to attack anything, it's pretty easy to do it. So context is important. Let me give it to you. 
As Think Progress points out, in fiscal year 2016, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, that's SNAP, uh, otherwise known as food stamps, is expected to cost about $70.8 billion. If Fox News' claim of $70 million in waste is correct, that would still mean that less than one-tenth of 1% of SNAP dollars are spent fraudulently. So 99.9% of the budget is not SNAP or food stamps, and 99.9% of SNAP spending is not fraudulent, which is actually an excellent record. I don't know how they pulled that off. So it is a tiny percentage of their budget. And Fox is like, news alert, news alert. We've got to get rid of the thing that helps poor people. We've got to pass trillions of dollars in tax cuts for the rich. God, they're gross. Now, one last piece of context. Compared to the $125 billion of waste that the Department of Defense recently tried to cover up, that figure appears even more microscopic. Now, that $125 billion is from a recent uh, report from the Defense Department. They uh, contracted out to a a group uh, led by very successful businessmen, they're like, great, these guys are on our side. The group looked into it and they're like, oh my God, there is monumental waste and fraud in the Pentagon. To the tune of $125 billion over five years. That's larger than the entire food stamp budget of $70.8 billion. Now, to be fair, $70 billion is per year, $125 billion is over five years. Okay, But the fraud that they found in the Food stamp program is 70 million. The fraud in the Pentagon is 125 billion. You see breaking news alerts on Fox News. Oh, Mike, we got to end the Pentagon. We got to end the Defense Department. Look at this 125 million, no billion dollars in waste. No, shh. We don't talk about that because Fox News loves defense contractors. They're part of the corruption. So they're like, hey, let's convince our conservative audience that. Giant amounts of waste is awesome and needed to protect American people. You know, when we need to go do, uh, you know, secondary offense, have our guy go in there and create more wars, well, that's great. And when we're wasting billions of dollars, and by the way, in Iraq and Afghanistan, trillions of dollars, we would just keep losing billions upon millions. And Rumsfeld would show up on TV and be like, another six billion? I don't know where it went, right? A trillion? I, I don't know. I lost it, right? Fox News is like, that's great, that's awesome. Oh my God, look at this food stamps. A 0.1% fraud and the whole program. I want you to know their agenda. That's their real agenda so that you can see past their obvious lies. For such a nuisance, tell me what good are they? Everything comes down to money. And they don't pay their way Jonathan Swift proposed it I'm just saying what he said before Think of the money we can save If we eat the poor Let's eat the poor Let's feed the people people It solves many problems 
And it can't be done any cheaper. So let's pivot to another thing that you've written about recently, and, and something you've been writing about for a long time, um, and that is um, what culminated in President Obama uh, basically doing a 180 on Social Security. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I remember you writing two or three years ago about about uh, Duncan Black, Eschaton, uh, right. Atrios, rather, That's right. uh, writing about how we should expand Social Security right. and tracking how that idea has been sort of like, I don't know, infecting the bloodstream, if you will. I mean, infecting in a good way. Uh, you but- know, the interesting thing is, so I remember when I started that story. It was in 2013. Obama had just put chain CPI in his budget, which right. you know, yeah. Do you want me to describe what that? Well, is? chain CPI is. Uh, I mean, I, I if if people listening to the program don't know what chain CPI <laughs> is, then I think I'm going to have to actually shut their feeds off by now uh, because they have not been listening the to opposite of criminal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, for that on this show, it, it, there's really basically two right. things that uh, okay. people on the show know: it's Fair chain enough. CPI or Halbig uh, versus Burwell. But a chain CPI is just a, basically a way of reducing um, the reducing benefits, the, uh, benefit cola cut. benefits. So right? anyway, there was, uh, so Obama wanted to do this benefit cut, uh, or at least he put it in his budget. You know, whether he wanted to do it, I'm not in his head. But um, uh, at the time that I was writing that story, all of the energy in the progressive wing of the Democratic Party was to stop that. None of it was about expanding social security only duncan black was really talking about expansion at that moment that i started that story and i would talk to all these people at dfa and 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 p triple c and all these people i said you know what are you doing why why aren't you i mean the the facts are is that we have this retirement crisis we have people that that can't even scrounge up a thousand dollars in an emergency uh they're not saving we don't have defined benefit pensions anymore. Uh, we have this one leg of the, the retirement stool that's left, and it's Social Security, and it's not enough. Why aren't we talking about expansion? Why are we just doing this defensive thing? And uh, all of them basically said, well, you got to get consensus when you build a coalition. The only consensus we had was stop chain CPI. And... uh so I started writing the story and the story got pushed back for, for various reasons. It was a print story and they moved it from one issue to the next. And over that time, everything changed. <laughs> like they started coming around to, yes, we got to do expansion. I had to rewrite that story to show that actually Duncan was having an impact. Uh, and right around that time, uh, the New America Foundation came out with this even larger expansion proposal for Social Security. A guy named Stephen Hill was kind of the backer of that and a few other people at, at New America. And uh, and so I had to go back to the same people who I talked to before and say, well, what happened? Why did you change it? And and they basically said that they they kind of took the point and that it was it was time to do this. It was time to stop, you know, being in that defensive crouch. I feel like there was also a backdrop of um, a lot of stories about how the 401k experiment. I mean, we've seen that over the years, right. but uh, I, particularly around that time. And, may, and it's hard to know, you know, chicken and an egg, right? What right. is spurring that? Right. Uh, but there was a lot of stories about how the 401k uh, program essentially just writ large was failing. So, okay. But, but then, why? so that was 2013. Right. And, and then once 
I think the progressive movement sort of got behind that. Uh, they were skillful enough to get the politicians on board. It was a little bill by Tom Harkin and Mark Begich, neither of whom are in Congress anymore. Right. Uh, that and it was an old Harkin bill that he had put together that has a somewhat modest increase. But it was the point was we're the, talking about increase, increase. and the I, the question was not whether to cut it, but how much to expand it. And Warren signs on to that. And I think it was like 2014 or something like that. And when she signs on to that and then she does this point of order, this parliamentary thing in a budget in a budget bill uh, and she gets 42 votes yep. from the from the caucus, including like Joe Manchin was, was a primary sponsor of this bill. So so now you have the ideological scope of the caucus saying, uh, OK, we get it. We, we've been educated. Uh, I think there was a lot of education that went on about retirement, uh, whether it was from directly from constituents or from, you know, uh, uh, you know, special interest or, uh, you know, progressive groups. And then it culminates in the election. And uh, Sanders was, you know, someone who was out in front on this and kind of pushed in many, like in other respects, pushed Clinton uh, to uh, a, a different kind of expansion. It was really for, uh, what, what is Clinton's, Clinton's bill? Clinton's bill is more targeted to, I think, uh, the lowest income. Lower uh, income Lower folks. income yeah. folks yeah, in yeah, the yeah, context yeah. of Social Security, as opposed to a, just a blanket right. uh, increase. Yeah. Right. Um, so, but again, the, the question is how much do we expand it, not do we cut it or, or whatever. Uh, and then it culminates in Obama. And no, well, no, uh, no. and it really came out of nowhere. No one was expecting well, that, it. Yeah. Well, okay. So explain that to me. Like, what is? Uh, we're getting into criminology again, right. I guess. But what's going on with that? I mean, is this is this uh, Obama at the end of his term doing like Bullworth, or is it is it um, Obama saying like uh, I'm going to open up some oxygen for Hillary Clinton so that she can move into this, or is it I'm going to make Clinton move into from that branch. Like she's, you know, she's out here and I'm going to make sure that she actually is forced a little bit to come a little bit closer to Sanders uh, position. I mean, what do you remember what's happening on the other side of this debate? You know, Donald Trump is, is talking about that. You know, he's, he's kind of moving toward the position of and certainly away from cutting it and he said you know we got to protect publicly anyways i'm gonna do whatever i want yes publicly he said something different apparently to uh paul ryan but nevertheless that's publicly where right but he said i mean here's the quote that i used actually in that piece there's no way a republican is going to beat a democrat when the republican is saying we're going to cut your social security and the democrat is saying we're going to keep it and give you more right so he knows what's going on and Obama knows, too. And so there may be a political angle to this, uh, but it's also a recognition that that the party has really shifted and and that, you know, in thinking about this very important issue of retirement uh, that affects the the portion of the electorate that votes, <laughs> um, it, you you really need to have a broader and deeper perspective rather than, you know, worrying about the budget. And and worrying about the deficit, you know, it's 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 sad that it got this it, that it took so long because I'm it quite is. convinced that like you know this is um, uh, 
if there was ever, you know, like 20, when you think about like 2010 or 2014, these off year elections, like the Democrats never ran on anything. No. Right. I mean, and this is something you could actually run on. Like it is, if you run on expanding social security, the, not only that proposal in and of itself, but the implications of that proposal, mm-hmm. like, like, you know, like we can actually, this is a political choice. This is not a, you know, we're not bound by the, right. uh, you know, economics. This is a political choice. And the other thing I want to say is that the trajectory of this kind of plays like the trajectory of uh, the same-sex marriage debate, that the activists really uh, uh, push this from the bottom up. And, and, and maybe the politicians were saying, yeah, I'm for it, but the, the public's not ready for it. They're not ready for this message. And then finally they decide – the public's ready and we, we open the floodgates. I think something similar went on. You know, uh, do you think it's sold that way? Do you, in other words, do you think the, uh, um, uh, activists go to politicians and say like, social security is the next marriage equality? No, I don't think it's sold. Or that do way. people say, I think they say we have a crisis. <laughs> and, okay. uh, uh, the, these are the facts. And, you know, the deficit hawkery plays this, like outsized role in Washington in the political debate. And so that's why I think it colors this, this, this aspect of, of the public not being ready to say, we're going to spend more money, right? Which is, which is right at the, at the root. Even though, you know, you can easily cover this with various structures like, you know, making it so that somebody making a hundred thousand dollars a year and LeBron James don't pay the same amount of payroll tax, for example. Of course. Um, so, uh, I think finally there's this recognition that the political recognition that you just brought up that, yeah, the public's not only ready, but, but eager. Uh, and every poll shows this. The public's very eager to, uh, move forward on expanding social security and giving people dignity and security and retirement and, uh, and that public provision of a better benefit is just the best and most efficient way to do that. Right. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. I want to mention the IKEA Corporation. I 
assume many of you know what that is. It's a Swedish company that is active here in the United States. It produces low-cost furniture, often the kind that you buy broken down, and then you put it together when you get it at home. Uh, been very successful. It, it is now all over the United States. Indeed, it has a total of 13,000 workers here in the United States. Why am I talking to you about it? Well, I don't have good things to say about corporations all that often, so let me congratulate IKEA. Why? Because over the last week, they announced that they are going to put into place a program of paid parental leave for their 13,000 workers. They are going to give them four months of paid parental leave, about 18 weeks. Now, this is very unusual. Most American large companies that have employees in the thousands give their workers no paid leave. The majority give none. Those who give don't give much. And those who give, give very in a very discriminating way. For example, fathers get less leave than mothers. Adoptive parents get less leave than birth parents. Foster parents get less leave than regular parents. And in an amazing comment on the United States, lower-wage workers often get less or no paid leave. Walmart, for example, offers some paid leave to its salaried employees, but none to its hourly wage-earning employees. In other words, you're concerned about providing parents at home to newborn children according to how much money their parents earn. While I let that sink in, let's go back to IKEA. I congratulate them. They are offering 18 weeks of paid vacation, equally to mothers and fathers, equally to birth parents, that is, natural parents, and adoptive and foster parents, all equally eligible. So IKEA is pretty good. Until I investigated what IKEA does for the 68 excuse me, for the many thousands, I don't know the exact number, of its employees in Sweden. The 68 comes out when I discovered that in Sweden, IKEA gives its workers 68 weeks of paid parental leave. 18 is a new one for Americans, but we are light years from what the same company does for its other workers in those parts of the world where paid parental leave is considered a right of people. I could stop here. The message is clear. Most American firms offer none. But let me drive it home one more way. The United States is the only one of the advanced industrial countries that does not require by law that there be paid parental leave, leaves it entirely up to the market, to the private sector, to free enterprises. And by leaving it up to them, unlike what the British or the French or the Germans or the Italians or the Irish or the Polish do, by leaving it to the market, the mass of Americans don't get it. 
Should I stop? No, one more step. Those countries are different from us, not only in providing parental leave so that parents and children can be together without sacrificing the economic well-being of the family, but those are society, unlike the United States, that don't make a big thing about their commitment to family values. We do. Lots of words. Very little action. Look me in the eye and it's sound. Family values that we have. It's just a memory in your mind. What you gone bad? There's no love. I'm joined today by George Lakey, who recently retired from Swarthmore College, where he was Eugene M. Lang visiting professor for issues in social change and managed the global nonviolent action database research project. Viking economics is his ninth book, and it's so great to talk about it. Uh, George, let's start sort of generally when we talk about Viking economics or Nordic economics, Scandinavian economics talked about it in different terms hugely stigmatized in the United States by a certain section of the sort of political spectrum, free stuff that people don't deserve, very high taxes and a bad business environment. Right. I mean, is there any truth to those stereotypes? (laughs) Not really. For example, Norway has more startups per capita than the United States does. It's actually a very thriving economic environment and they do support uh, entrepreneurs very strongly. They just don't support them at the expense of the common good. So that the, the genius of the, of, of what economists call the Nordic model is that it keeps looking out for the well-being of the whole at the same time as it supports creativity and innovation and in the uh, economic realm. There's this idea, uh, you know, we could have a debate over what is the sort of right or fair level of taxation. And that's sort of a more uh, abstract question. But there's this idea that objectively taxes are just outrageously high in many of these countries. But I think what's often not considered in that is if you are paying, for example, health insurance premiums in the U.S. and you're comparing the tax rate to a country that has a national health care system, shouldn't you also be considering your health insurance premiums in in thinking about sort of your total tax rate if comparing to a country that has a national health care system? I mean, am I am I wrong about that or would that be how you get an apples to apples comparison? That's right. That's right. You're completely right. In fact, when you ask entrepreneurs uh, who have achieved, you know, some substantial wealth, when you ask them, well, how do you feel about these very high taxes that you pay? They said, yes, but we don't pay for health insurance. We don't need to send our uh, we don't need to pay for higher education for our kids. We can send our kids through medical school, law school, whatever. And we're not actually sending them through because they're going through thanks to a, a, an economic system that makes those in, in a sense free. Of course, nothing's really free. It's all paid by taxation. 
taxation. On the other hand, the benefits are enormous. And uh, many Americans, for example, living over there would actually save money, because, especially if they're paying for their own uh, uh, medical care, which can be, of course, enormous. It can even bankrupt people. And also, and nobody's bankrupted by medical care over there because it's all taken care of. Uh, and also uh, matters like um, higher education, which, again, can be something a lot of young people are now saddled with enormous debts. But that's uh, that's unheard of in that in, that, in those countries. Let's assume for a second that we could convince some of these. I don't know if we want to call them supply siders or call them what you will. Those who are very negative about the Nordic economic system. Let's assume we could convince someone that it works well there, right? Very often we run up against this talking point that, listen, the U.S. can't do what smaller European countries can do in terms of health care or social services, et cetera, because those countries are very small and the U.S. is very big, many more people, much more infrastructure. And what works there just could not be applied in the United States. Talk about that a little bit. Is there anything to that? Well, the same thing was said about Social Security. It would never work for the United States to have a Social Security system. That's something Europeans can do, but we cannot. And obviously, we're well established in a Social Security system. Another example, more recent example, is Medicare. Because, again, there was a lot of opposition among supply-siders to having Medicare. Not only is Medicare counted on by, by tens of millions of Americans and all over the country, but also, when uh, studies are done about how satisfied people are with Medicare, it turns out people are much more satisfied with Medicare than they are with private uh, individual health uh, insurance. Hmm. And so those are two systems that are taken for granted in the Nordic countries. They were imported to the United States, and they get uh, huge support here in the United States. There is another uh, sort of common uh, line from the detractors of many of the systems that you wrote about in Viking economics, which is what's different really is not a matter of scale when you compare the American economy to uh, Nordic economies. But what's different is that many of those countries are relatively homogenous and have less diversity. And this is a very popular talking point for those who are against uh, multiculturalism and diversity, et cetera. They say, hey, the U.S. could do what they're doing there, but we can't in practice because we just let anybody into this country and it's too diverse here and, and we have all of the problems that come with diversity as they see it. Talk a little bit yes. about that with regard to some of these economies. Well, it was an important research question for me as well, because I didn't look into those countries not skeptically. You know, I was very curious about how do they handle questions like diversity and and for that matter, questions of scale. And how could that be applied to our country? And on my way into one of the research outfits that gave me generously a tremendous lot of time for interviewing, I saw a photograph on the wall that showed a delegation of Chinese who had been sent from Beijing. And I said, oh, why, why was this Chinese delegation here? And they said, well, these were economists and political scientists uh, and policymakers who were sent from Beijing to explore and learn from the Norwegian uh, system. And I said, how could that possibly be for exactly the reasons you just stated? And they said that uh, they asked that same question of the Chinese. They were very surprised the Chinese were there. Tiny, you know, Norway's only 5 million people. 
Um, and and of course, China is not only huge compared with Norway. China is huge compared with the United States, and China is also highly diverse, more much more diverse than the United States is. Um, and so, what the the Chinese delegation said is, our government sent us here to learn what we can because some particular policies and structures are influenced by diversity, are influenced by scale, and others are not. Some things scale up really well. And social security would be an example of that. And some uh, some things can uh, are very very doable, no matter how much uh, diversity there is. And again, social security would be an example of that in our own country, because in our ex- own experience, Medicare and social security don't aren't affected by uh, you know by the the first language people happen to speak. There are uh, probably many people who are sort of generally familiar in my audience with uh, the with Scandinavia and Nordic economic models, but they may sort of see them as as an amorphous, non-distinguished group in your research. And this may be as much of a cultural question as it is economic. What were some of the most interesting distinguishing factors between the countries you studied that might be interesting to, to some in our audience? One distinguishing factor is that the Norwegians are far more distrustful of corporations, of large corporations, than the other countries. They're so distrustful that the Norwegian government buys controlling interest of all the large corporations. And so when the board of directors meets, a certain number of those seats, you know, the the majority, actually, the controlling interest, uh, are held by the government itself. And that's in order to make sure that those corporations don't do things that are against the public interest. Uh, that That's a more, I would say the Norwegians are more distrustful of corporate decision making than the other Nordic countries. Hmm. Very, very interesting. Uh, last thing I want to touch on when it comes to looking at issues like, for example, climate change or more uh, uh, what we might consider social issues. Can you talk a little bit about how the economic system of the country sort of influences the views on some of these other issues that that certainly are related to economics, but maybe less so in some ways? Yes. Well, uh, I do have a couple of chapters in my book, Viking Economics, on the, uh, the things that I say are both challenges for our country, for America, and also challenges for them. One challenge is racism. Yes, racism does show up in those countries as, as it does so, so prominently in ours. And the, the, uh, what, the reason why they are more optimistic actually than we are about handling racism is because they have the Nordic economic model on their side. So, for example, people with talent to go to university are not handicapped by their financial situation. They may be very recent immigrants. Um, they may come from, uh, you know, uh, uh, very impoverished countries of their, previous life. And then suddenly there they are in Norway or Sweden or Denmark, and they're able to go all, you know, all the way as, as far as their talent will take them. And so that means that the, uh, even though the family they came with may be, it could remain poor for a while until they get their feet under under them. um, The members of their family that are able to take advantage of the tremendous training and educational opportunities there can just go right for it. They're not frozen out for a few generations while people slowly try to get, as often is the case here, try to get into the system for upward mobility. So those countries 
have much more upward mobility than the United States does. It used to be the reverse. It used to be they had chosen, you know, if you were born into working class, that's where you stayed. But over there, uh, there's much and mobility, which me, because the economy in turn is benefited by being rewarded and people being able to move forward on the things that really matter to them. At a time like this, it's more important than ever to keep our independent media well-funded. Of course, not everyone can afford to chip in, so take a moment to think about your own circumstances and ask yourself if you're in a position to stand up when you know others can't. On my website, under the Contribute tab, you can sign up to donate any amount you want on a one-time or monthly basis. PayPal is the default method, but I know a lot of people prefer not to use them, so I have an alternative available for you to use, and you can find all the details to that on the same Contribute page. If you sign up to donate $6 a month or more, that's less than a dollar an episode, you get access to a members-only podcast, including commercial-free versions of the show, as well as occasional bonus episodes I make in which I tell some stories and mull over some big ideas. So again, if you have the means to support independent media, I hope you'll begin to contribute to whatever sources you get the most value out of, and you can support this show by going to the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks to all of those who have already signed up, and thanks in advance to all who will. We have a president of the United States in Donald J. Trump who promised he would not touch Social Security or Medicare. So why is it, one wonders, that we are constantly having to cover the various indirect and covert ways that Donald J. Trump and members of his administration and members of his party are trying to do exactly that or so it seems. And so I believe it would seem to our next guest, our good friend Nancy J. Altman is the president of Social Security Works and she is the author of a number of books on the topic, including the battle for social security from FDR's vision to Bush's gamble and she is the co-author of Social Security Works why social security isn't going broke and how expanding it will help us all so Nancy first of all welcome to the program thank you so much so let's start with this you wrote a piece the other day on Trump's uh, Trojan horse attack on Social Security. And, of course, a lot of us caught that one. But tell us what you meant by that. Well, the President Trump has, I hate to use that word, our so-called president. Right. As, um, as part, supposedly as part of tax reform, um, is reportedly considering a something that would really be a stealth attack on social security it sounds like a gift it's it's um the idea of of um getting rid of social security contributions so you've got this jump in your take home pay but what it really does is it undermines economic security so it appears to be a gift but when you really look inside it will destroy um the very economic security it's trying to it's claiming to provide well, you're referring, I believe, to 
uh, the president, and I also use the term loosely, to the president's uh, uh, trial balloon or, or proposal or whatever. It's somewhere in between the notion of giving people uh, a reduction in the FICA tax that goes for Social Security that includes a Social Security payment and uh, Medicare as well, right? And yes, and I'm, and you know, FICA, it's important to remember that it stands for the, it's an acronym for the Federal Insurance Contributions Act. These are not taxes other than anytime you pay the government, of course, on a mandatory basis, you can call it a tax, but it really is different from income tax and other kinds of taxes. It's a it's an insurance contribution or in today's parlance, a premium that is used to purchase social security. That is part of what makes it an earned benefit in addition that you can only get it through work. Um, so the um, it is what um, he's proposing as part of tax so-called, um, well, he, he even says tax cuts, tax reform. You know, the the um, it is part of the the Republican desire to what they call starve the beast. They can't attack government friendly because it does too much, and they can't it does too much that's important and good and the people support. And they can't friendly attack Social Security, although they've tried many, many, many times. Um, so now they're trying in this really dishonest way to um to undermine its financing and therefore as the first step to destroying it yeah you know i think this is a really important point uh, a very fundamental point and it requires a kind of you know an understanding of the the contract the the de facto contract that a program like social security represents meaning that you know the deal going back to the creation of social security in effect was you will pay this premium and in return you will receive certain benefits when you qualify for them by age or disability or whatever the qualifying event happens to be and that's a deal that and and, and, and you know uh, a lot of what went into as i understand it the creation of social security was let's make this a deal so it can't be broken and so that as fdr put it no damn politician can you know can change the terms but if you start monkeying with that if you start saying well i'm going to give you a, a little break on your premium but when it comes time to collect i might say well you know we changed the deal back there you really start breaking the implicit contract but you're doing it in a back door i, I don't know does that make any sense to you nancy See what I'm that trying makes, to say? That makes complete sense. You know, like any kind of insurance, private insurance, you, especially something that's um, life insurance or um, disability insurance, old age annuities, which is what Social Security is, you pay in at the beginning of your working life. You may be 20, 25, 30, 15. You know, at the beginning of your working life, you start contributing, paying your premiums, but you're not going to collect for decades. Um, you know, as you say, when you reach the insured event, if you reach retirement age, if you um, die leaving young children, if you become disabled, you you have become insured and, and you collect on your insurance. The, whenever you have that kind of long lag time, you have to have some sense of security. It's going to be paid up, which is why it's dedicated revenue. It's placed in trust, very clear rules, not subject to the annual appropriations process. 
if you undermine, and it's why there's a, a trust fund and a reserve, every juror has a, a reserve. If you start monkeying around with that and say, well, okay, we don't, we, you don't have to pay premiums. We'll just take it out of our general revenue. Then some future Congress can say, well, I've changed my mind. We've, or we've got other pressing needs or we don't want to spend it on this. And all of a sudden you no longer can count on that. The concept, the, the name itself, social security says it. What you want is a sense of peace of mind, security. Now, it's been lost somewhat because of the campaign to undermine confidence in Social Security, but it actually is there. The money is there. There's a $2.8 trillion surplus. What they're now talking about, though, is is rating that, substituting um, much less secure funding for it and say, yeah, take your chance. And as you say, fundamentally change the contract. You know, and and again, we're talking with Nancy Altman, president of Social Security, where there are two glaring contra- philosophical contradictions to me in the conservative Trumpian position on all of this. Contradiction number one is they've been screaming for years falsely and dishonestly that the program is running out of money. There's a long-term imbalance that can be addressed by lifting the payroll cap and so on. But the program is not going to run out of money. It will always have revenue and so on. But they've been screaming that it's running out of money. And now they're talking about lessening the amount of money going in. That to me is... No, keep it set. And they've been claiming that it's part of the general or pretending that it's part of the general fund uh, for for the federal government when, in fact, it's prohibited by law from contributing to the deficit and so on. So on the one hand, now they're turning around and saying, well, let's give it even less money and let's slip it into the general fund so that we can start really saying, well, we can't afford it for the first time in history. Am I well, off base? It, it's like the old it's like the old joke about person who kills his parents and then pleads to the court, he's an orphan. That they tried this just the other with Trump care. Um, Paul Ryan has been saying Medicare is going bankrupt, we can't afford it. So what do they do in Trump care? They raid Medicare. Fortunately, they, that didn't get even through the House. What they're saying now is Social Security has a manageable shortfall. It doesn't add a penny to the deficit. So let's make it add to the deficit and let's make its funding much less stable. And then we can claim we, well, we got a means test or we got to change it in some dramatic way. Trump care didn't get out of the house. Let's hope this doesn't even get out of the white house. Yeah. You know, uh, which by the way, gets me to the second contradiction, which is that conservatives are always lecturing the American people on why, on the fact that they should be saving more. Although so many Americans are struggling just to survive paycheck to paycheck that saving for the future is impossible. But here's a program where people have been investing, as you say, from the very beginning of their career and doing it successfully. And now they're saying, well, well, maybe you, you, you don't put in so much. <laughs> Doesn't isn't that crazy? That's, that's very nicely put. And and but the reason is obvious, and that is that they their answer is always the same: end social security. Right. And what they do is they find different arguments. So part of the problem with ending social security is people see on every paycheck that they are paying for Social Security, so they know it's an earned benefit, they know it's their money, they know they don't want Congress monkeying around with it. It's not any kind of government handout, it's an earned 
um, earn money. So that so they go well, maybe we should make it not quite so visible. You know, usually right. they they want transparency in government. Here it's like no, let's let's hide the cost and that, so that people uh, don't have quite the connection with it. I mean, this was part of Franklin Roosevelt's genius that generally on you you uh, you know there's sort of the general thought is, oh, you want to sort of hide costs, not really know. He said, no, I want people to know what they are paying for and what they're getting for it. Yeah, that's that is genius, actually. And let's okay. So let's pivot. You mentioned that the Trump care plan didn't even make it out of the house. Uh, A question you don't expect, Nancy Altman. You saw the Austin Powers movies. Um, because I, I think it failed because of, the, you know, it was, they were replicating the problem that Dr. Evil had with his son, Scott, where, you know, Dr. Evil said, Scott, can't you just be a little bit evil? And, you know, <laughs> one was not evil enough for the other, you know, that, that, that's why it failed, but it did fail. And, and your response, which was exactly mine, I mean, I, I, you know, this, that your headline could have come straight from my heart on this one after Trump care failed. Democrats should respond to Trump's health care defeat by expanding Medicare. So tell me your thinking there, if you would. Well, Medicare, like Social Security, is extremely successful and extremely popular. It was intended to be simply a first step in um, universal health care, Medicare for all. The Republicans, of course, didn't want any part of that. And the new Dems, starting with President Clinton with Trump Care, and then I don't know if President Obama would have called himself a new Dem, but they decided to try to entice the Republicans with a Republican idea, build on the marketplace, build on the part of the sector. Now, what would have been terrific is if Obama had proposed Medicare for all, my guess is the Republicans would have come back with um, something similar to. Uh, the Affordable Care Act, but that's not how it went. Republicans didn't go for it, and now and now and now they're pushing for something weaker. Demo- Democrats want to improve the Affordable Care Act, and an easy way to do it is to lower the Medicare age to 62 when you can start getting Social Security, or even 50, which would get rid of the so-called age tax, where um, older people are charge more for their private health insurance than younger people. That's not true under Medicare. Everyone's charged the same. So it would be the right thing to do to lower the Medicare age. That would bring healthier people into the Medicare program and lower those costs. And it would bring the least healthy people out of the private health insurance and lower those costs. So it's a completely winning situation. It's excellent policy. It's really what's Democrats should have been pushing for since 1965. Right. And you know what else I I really love about that idea? Besides the fact that, you know, I know enough insurance financing to know that it's uh, actuarially extremely sound, uh, sound thinking and, and it's good policy. But it's also great politics because, you know, Harry Truman did not say, it's a paraphrase, but it's a good paraphrase, that in a race between a Republican and a Republican, the Republican (laughs) wins every time. You know, the the fact is that the Democrats for too long, too many of them have been throwing around Republican light ideas. And 
you know, this is basically playing on the strengths that the Democratic Party used to have as the party of Social Security and the party of Medicare. You know, at least the Republicans are telling a story that's simple and clear. It may be a total fabrication, but, you know, they have a, a point of view. And to come back and say, no, we, we have created two programs for you, the American people, that work for you terrifically well, that you love, that you support, and we're going to expand those programs to, to make things better for everyone. That seems to me not only great policy, but that's something you can run on in a 2018 election and a 2020 election. And it is easy to understand. Everyone knows, either receives Medicare or knows someone who's receiving Medicare. It's not a complicated idea. Um, the you know these Rube Goldberg machines, which is essentially what private health insurance is, is extremely complicated. You know, copays, deductibles, it, you know, different formularies for drugs, all those kinds of things are so complicated. What the American, you know, the the Republicans are always saying the American people want choice. What they want choice on is what doctor they can see, what hospital right. they go to. They don't care who pays the bills as long as they get paid. And having Medicare pay your bills is so simple. Most people hang on just to reach the Medicare age. So it makes perfect sense to build on its success. reach the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, call Congress to demand they stop the budget cuts and invest in human needs. Some are describing Trump's recently released skinny budget more accurately as a starving budget. It guts essential programs and services that were already minuscule parts of the federal budget while inflating the already gluttonous defense budget by $54 billion. While it's true that this budget as is would likely never pass Congress, the ideology it represents can and will. The budget reveals the conservative fantasy to erase nearly all of the social benefit programs that improve life for millions in the name of national security. But it also represents just how truly out of touch conservatives are with the priorities of the American people. We know this because of the great work done by organizations like the National Priorities Project, a nonprofit, nonpartisan federal budget research organization that works to inspire individuals and movements to take action so our federal resources Sources, prioritize peace, shared prosperity, and economic security for all. For example, according to the National Priorities Project, 8 in 10 Americans wouldn't mind raising payroll taxes and taxing income over the earnings cap to ensure Social Security is on sound financial footing. Meanwhile, Trump is proposing massive tax cuts, especially for people like himself. 
Only 22% of Americans support reducing health spending, and 61% strongly value making Medicare sound. But Paul Ryan and conservatives are still on a mission to cut health spending and hurt Medicare recipients. Despite 76% of the country supporting efforts to improve the education system, for decades only 6% of our budget has gone toward education spending. Now, conservatives are proposing doing away with the Department of Education almost entirely. This data, as well as an impressive live tracking of our war spending, is organized on nationalpriorities.org. While the budget is in the spotlight, this is the time to call Congress and tell them your priorities, and perhaps remind them about the priorities of the majority of the country as well. The Coalition on Human Needs, CHN, is an alliance of national organizations working together to promote public policies which address the needs of low-income and other vulnerable populations. They're asking people to take action by writing and calling Congress to urge them to pass a spending bill that invests in basic living standards and fundamental human needs, not one that continues to cut these programs. Go to chn.org and click the Take Action tab to learn more and directly send a message to your congressperson. Now, of course, we always encourage you to call Congress whenever you can, because outside of attending a town hall meeting or speaking directly with your rep, calling is the most impactful way to make your voice heard. So we're pleased to share a brand new tool with you built by a team that includes one of our awesome listeners that makes calling even easier. Stance is a smartphone app and online tool that uses your location to pull up your rep and senators, lets you record your voice message, and then puts your message straight into your rep's voicemail box. There's no looking up phone numbers to call, no waiting on hold, no dealing with busy signals, and you don't even have to talk to anyone. You can just record your message and Stance does the rest to get it in your representative's voicemail box. You can also make your Stance recording public, minus your identifying information, to encourage others to act and even tweet your stance publicly directly at your representative to put pressure on. Head over to takeastance.us today to try it out. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if investing in our society for the benefit of all is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about calling Congress to demand they stop the budget cuts and invest in human needs via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. It seems we always have money for war. Politicians have showed us their priorities on that. It's time now to demand that they listen to ours. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration. The usual madness, but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? How you understand the tax system depends on what your agenda is. There are alternative ways of analyzing budgets. There always have been. And there's nothing innocent about doing it. People who approach it have a choice of ways of doing so. If they're honest, they tell you that. That's why I'm trying to tell it to you now. Uh, But if they're not, they present one perspective, one way of thinking about it, as if it were the only way or the right way. And that, that just won't do. It's a little bit like acting as if 
one particular religion is the correct and right one and everybody else is wrong versus understanding religions as different ways of trying to deal uh, with certain issues in human beings' lives. Okay, the budget. First problem. What do you count as a tax? After all, the federal government's budget begins by looking at where does the money come from? And there's a frequent shorthand that runs like this. Oh, everything that comes to the government is a tax. Well, not really, because the word tax is not so clear. For example, if you take a certain portion of your income and call it a tax and send it to the government, and they use it for everything that comes up as an expense, from fixing the roads, to helping college students with loans, to financing the social security system, and so on. Okay, that might make sense, but that shouldn't get the same name as, for example, a deduction from your wage every week that is set aside by the government to be given back to you when you're age 65. Because then what the government is doing is actually running a pension program. Social Security, Medicare, and so on, these are insurance systems. They take money out of you, like paying a premium, and then they give you something back, you as an individual. In fact, what you get back, it has some relationship, certainly in Social Security, with what you put in, etc. Whereas a general tax payment doesn't have that. You can use the word tax for both of them, but it hides more than it reveals, which is not a good sign. So let me be blunt with you. For me, I separate what we pay to the government that it uses in general from what we pay to the government because it's running a insurance program for us like Social Security. Once you do that, once you see that money in, say, to be eligible for Medicare when you're 65, or money in to be eligible for a Social Security pension payment every month, etc., these kinds of things really ought to be considered separately. And if you do that, then it becomes crystal clear what the overwhelming cost of the taxes we pay, the money that isn't geared to taking care of us in our old age or in, in the case that we have medical needs, particularly after we're 65. When you look at that, the real kind of tax as tax part, then the overwhelming use of our money is for defense, for the military. And there it simply reminds us all that the United States spends more on military than the next seven countries after us. And those countries include China, Russia, and so on. So we spend more money than the next seven combined spend. Nobody is even close. And our taxes pay for that. It's, of course, a perfectly legitimate question whether the taxes we pay are excessive for the defense we get. It's also legitimate to ask whether we need a defense now that we have really nothing like the enemy, the Soviet Union, that we used to use to justify these expenses. But it is a taboo topic in the United States, which is a very good thing for the companies that produce 
the goods and services that the United States military spends all our tax money on. And the periodic scandals about that should surprise nobody. We just heard clips today starting with the Young Turks pointing out Fox's absurd targeting of programs for the poor. The Majority Report spoke with David Dayan about the benefits of expanding Social Security. Professor Richard Wolf on Economic Update looked at IKEA's family leave program to compare with the dramatically anti-family policies in the U.S. The David Pakman Show discussed how Scandinavia got their economics right to protect their people and spur innovation. The Zero Hour highlighted the need to defend Social Security from those who would dismantle it. Our activism for today is in support of the Coalition on Human Needs. And finally, we just heard Richard Wolf again discussing the more intellectually honest ways that we should think and talk about our largest federal budget expenditures. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. It's Dave out of Olympia, Washington. I am calling to respond to Alan from Georgia who left us mail on the most recent show. And I totally appreciate everything, Alan, the point he's making, the nuance to the conversation that not all conservatives want to see women punished. There were two things that he said uh, that almost made me jump out of my chair. Like, I've learned a new horrifying thing. And, like, it slid right past in his description. But Louisiana, apparently, according to Alan, has a law on the books set to like it's it's primed it's like a you know a landmine uh set to go off the instant roe v wade is overturned if it is overturned that in louisiana like that instant abortion will be illegal and you know providers will be punished so like that's that's out there that that's a landmine that's waiting for us in the future i had no idea i don't know why i wasn't cynical enough to think that such a thing would exist the second thing that he said and I hope this was, I mean, maybe not, but I hope this was a misstatement that, that, that the law would not provide punishment for women seeking abortion, but the law would punish women who provide abortions. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that the law would provide, would punish any provider of abortion, but I mean, I don't know. Maybe Louisiana is biased enough to, you know, have a law that would only target women providers with with punishment, and that male providers of abortion would, you know, just uh, it's it's illegal, but there's no punishment for you, which would be horrifying and and weird and ridiculous. But I'm 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 confident that that was a misstatement. But that also made me about jump out of my chair when that was said. I'm like, what? That doesn't make any sense. Anyhow, Alan, thank you so much for the edition, and Jay, thank you so much for the show. As always, both of y'all stay awesome. Bye. Hey, it's Annie from Alabama, and I just wanted to call in response to something you mentioned in your climate change, um, your climate change episode on political framing. Um, it reminded me of a TED talk that I listened to by Rob Willer, where he's talking. He's a social psychologist, and he's talking about how every single political topic. That we, that we speak about is framed in a certain way depending on our political leanings. And recently in my college, which is very, very conservative, in a debate class, I had to talk about why the U.S. 
should go for universal health care. And I knew my audience was very Christian, very conservative. I could not frame this in a way that I would as a typical um, leftist. So I framed it as protecting protecting the poor is something that is, is American. It's American values. It's the way we should be. And at the end of the debate, it was actually much more well-received when I framed it as something that a conservative would like. We have to learn how to do this for all political topics, whether that's climate change or healthcare or anything. We have to learn why do the conservatives think the way they think and how can I convince them to come to my side armed with that knowledge. I think when we learn to be more empathetic towards the people across the aisle and kind of get into their own heads a little bit and see what they value, they value, you know, they, they value nationalism and, and patriotism. And when we can, when we can uh, pray or use those things to our advantage, I think that we will have much more productive political conversation. And, and I think if we could all learn how to do that, we could actually make some progress. That's just my two cents on that. Thank you for what you're doing. I really appreciate all the episodes you've been doing recently. Keep up the good work. Hey, Jay, thank you. My name is Romulo. Um, I'm calling from Miami, Florida. I want to thank you for your show. I discovered it sometime in um, January or early February of this year, and shortly after became a member. I am a registered independent voter and decided to call the show in response to your invitation to share the experience of the last 100 days. Obviously, the election of Donald Trump was a cold and rude awakening for me to the realities of how divided we have become. It knocked me off my comfort zone and got my attention. I still decided to give the administration some time to show if it was a bluff from someone who wanted to get elected or there was a true risk involved, which I believe there is. Um, at the beginning, I went through the entire range of negative emotions that I could experience. Um, I even became angry at people who I knew or thought I knew who were celebrating the results. I retracted later that position and decided to stay informed and to look for my tribe, which I believe now to be the progressive movement. And that's how I decided I was going to channel my energy when the time felt right. So that's the story of the last 100 days. I enjoy your show tremendously. I look forward to the days you upload it. And um, because of your activism segment, I participated in the March of Science and the Climate March, where I met some amazing people. So my take on what I have learned and my personal experience over the last 100 years is that mm, you cannot convince people uh, by arguing about facts and confronting them directly. So whatever I do, as I start to become more active, has to focus on a positive message that resonates uh, with the premise that the progressive issues affect all Americans and that although some people are so ingrained on their belief systems that they will never open up to anything else, there are enough skeptical, smart people out there on the fence to make a difference in midterm elections and to advance progressive causes. So again, thank you for the show. I really enjoy it and keep up on the good work. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, in today's activism segment, you heard me tell you for the first time about this new app that I absolutely love called Stance. And I just wanted to go, go into a little bit more detail on that because there are a lot of elements of it that I think are really cool and just deserve a little more time and explanation. So in the wake of this most recent election, there has been an absolute tidal wave of enlightenment about the most effective ways to contact Congress and, and to be engaged politically, and that is to call your representatives and senators. Everyone's caught on to the fact that petitions are basically bullshit they don't really do what you might think or just vaguely hope they're going to do. They just don't. Uh, if if 10,000 people sign a petition and it gets sent to a congressperson, they basically count that as one contact. That's the same as one person calling their office or writing a letter. So obviously, calling, saying that you're a constituent, giving them your personal information telling them your story, telling them personally why a given issue matters to you and telling them what you think about it and what they hope, uh, you know, what you hope they will do about it is by far the most impactful thing you can do when contacting Congress. But there are all kinds of barriers to that. First of all, the phone technology is old and, you know, Congress is just not really hip to technology. So they have an intern who picks up the phone and takes notes and sometimes they're there, and sometimes their phones are too busy and you can't get through. Sometimes their voicemail inbox is full, so even if you go to voicemail, you can't leave your message. So you're expected to call back and call back. And, and then beyond that, I think, you know, I, I don't think I'm going on too much of a limb here to say that there's a bit of a generational divide in how people use phones. Millennials, myself included, I just don't talk on the phone. I don't enjoy it. It's not something I look forward to doing. And because I don't do it very often, there's a sense of anxiety that comes with, uh, you know, calling anyone, especially a stranger, especially Congress, and, you know, telling them what you think, even if I know intellectually, yeah, it's, it's some, you know, 21-year-old intern answering the phone. There's nothing to be afraid of. It doesn't matter. People aren't rational. If you don't want to talk on the phone, you're not going to call Congress and your voice isn't being heard as it might be if it was easier to make that contact. So Stance comes in and they solve so many of these problems all at once in this really smooth and easy way. So first of all, as I described briefly in, in the activism segment, you record your message and you wait until, you, you know, if you need to re-record it, you can re-record it, do whatever you want. And when you're happy with it, only then does it get sent to your congressperson or senator. And you, you have nothing left to do at that point. You don't have to wait on the line. You don't have to talk to a person. And you don't have to fear that their voicemail inbox is going to be full because Stance knows that. Stance knows if the voicemail inbox is full. And they will just keep trying over and over again until that voicemail box has been cleared out and your message can be deposited. So... They solve all the problems of anyone with any degree of anxiety or or any reason whatsoever why you might not want to call. 
You can now record your message ahead of time and send it right to their voicemail. And what's really important to know about calling Congress is you have to tell them who you are, that you're a constituent, what your address is so that they can confirm if you want any chance of them responding to you, you should give them, you know, a phone number, an email address, anything like that. And Stance does a great job of keeping all of that information private. So one of the cool features I was about to get to about Stance is that you can make your call public. So you can put public pressure on Congress, you know, your congressperson in particular saying, hey, I'm letting the world know that I'm calling you out. But at the same time, you you don't want your name and address and everything to be public. So Stance has, has it set up in this really cool way so that you record your name, say that you're a constituent, give them your address and your email address and anything else you want to tell them, and then stop. And Stance saves that information separately. And then every time you call, it pieces together the message your, you know, the, the message you want to get across, your opinion on an issue, and it stitches it together with your contact information. So your representative knows who you are and gets your contact information, but the only bit of that that goes public to, you know, to that can be on the Stance platform and that you can tweet publicly and share, you know, publicly and let all of your friends know, hey, listen, I'm calling Congress, this is what I think, you should call them too, so that you can inspire others to act. That message that goes public doesn't include your personal information so that you know that no one's going to try to find you or you know do anything else creepy like that. Everyone's in favor of privacy. It makes all the sense in the world, and Stance has that down pat. And so beyond it just solving a bunch of problems that I think already existed, what I think is one of the coolest things is what I was just touching on is that it helps you inspire others. The fact that you can now call Congress and then share that call publicly means that we can inspire more and more people to do this thing that we know is the most impactful thing that they can do. So your action is not just highly impactful in and of itself, but it can be used as a multiplier effect to help others take action and be impactful as well. So again, you can find the Stance app by going to takeastance.us or just searching for Stance in your app store. Now, full disclosure, as I said, one of the people on the team who built this app is a listener of the show and got in touch with me to tell me about it. And so I, I, I loved the concept and liked it so much, I actually wanted to help them improve it. So I've been in touch with them and we've just been spitballing ideas of how to make it better. So to the degree that I am involved with the app in some way, I guess you could say I'm involved, but I wouldn't be if I didn't believe in the core concept going in. And so today we asked you to call Congress to let them know what you think our budget priorities should be. And if you do that using the Stance app, once you make your recording, why don't you go ahead and tweet at us or just email me the link to your Stance and let us hear what you had to say. Maybe it'll get played on the show and we can inspire some more people to take action. And as always, if you want to call in directly to the show and give us your comments, the number again, 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out 
out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a crying shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories And wonder why we're missing We can't see past our own sad stories And forget how to listen We can't see past